A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on our first At The Movies for 2023, a portrait of the artist as a young man. You think whatever bad things you want about me, kiddo, but you stop making movies. It'll break your mother's heart. A portrait of an industry having the time of its life. I think what we have here in Hollywood is high arts. It's... And the remarkable story of a 30-year-old man who went back to his old school. Impossible and schmossable. You can get round impossible. I watched Mission Impossible when I was little, and that was very influential for me, especially the first season. It's that time of year when you wish this gig paid by the hour. Starting with the three-hour and 12-minute Avatar, The Way of Water, and then Spielberg's The Fablemans, which is two hours and 31 minutes, Babylon, which doesn't leave you any change from three hours and 10 minutes, and next week's Tar at two hours and 38 minutes, there hasn't been much time for the beach. Here are some thoughts about the films I liked best this summer. Why do you come to us? The humans are returning. They're hunting us. You do not know the sea. We will learn your ways. If you want to live here, you have to ride. This week it was announced that James Cameron's Avatar, The Way of Water, is the highest grossing film in New Zealand history and the fifth highest worldwide, and it's still going strong. I don't know much about the movie business, but I do know that betting against Cameron is a sucker's game. Three of those top five titles were directed by him. While there are plenty of aspects of Avatar 2 that you might describe as questionable, it seems to me that it has a bigger heart than most other blockbusters, and that human audiences are continuing to respond to it on that basis. After all, its blunt environmental message might be a tad unsophisticated for a classy urban audience of grown-up cinephiles, but we still respond to Cameron's extraordinary control during his action sequences. There's literally no one better during a giant battle scene at keeping you connected with all of the moving parts, who everyone is, and where they are in physical and emotional relation to each other. He makes it look easy, but watch most Marvel movies and you'll see how hard it actually is. And getting Disney to pay for three hours of vegan propaganda is a colossal achievement in itself. So we need to talk about school. Can I bring Megan? Katie, you know that's not possible. Then I'm not going. Oh, come on, Katie. Hey, I'm sorry. Let's just talk about it. Hey, hey, hey. Let me go. Whoa. Hey. What's going on? Hey, Katie. Go. What are you doing? Stop it. Katie, calm down. Let her go. Megan, turn off. Are you sure? 
For a brief moment, the two biggest films in the world were both directed by New Zealanders, or at least in James Cameron's case, a permanent resident. The brilliantly conceived horror Megan, directed by Housebound's Gerard Johnston, was also largely shot in New Zealand in 2021, and it shows, along with X, Pearl and the Netflix series Sweet Tooth, that there need be no cringe about our ability to make globally successful commercial content. Now we just need to make sure that review of the government's big screen subsidy ensures that there's a quota for local actors. It's amazing that there isn't one already. Megan is about a prototype life-size robot doll that can learn enough about the world to become a grieving child's best friend. With the sudden proliferation of machine learning artists and writers that we're hearing about at the moment... Megan reminds us that all too often the smartest people in the room are simultaneously the dumbest. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Now I'm sitting here next to you and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside. And if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. Uh, with all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. Most movie stars hate being movie stars. It's not why they got into the business. Life gets infinitely easier and happier for them when they return to being character actors. Exhibit A is, of course, Nicolas Cage. But gaining ground on the outside is Colin Farrell. I haven't seen the other film of his from last year that's being touted for an acting Oscar after Yang because it didn't get released here, but the Banshees of Inisherin will do while I wait. I've been trying to find an allegorical message in the story of two friends in Ireland in the 1920s whose relationship turns destructive when one, Brendan Gleeson, doesn't want to be friends with the other. That would be Colin Farrell. But apart from the civil war that's going on across the water on the mainland, I'm struggling to put my fingers on it. I never do this, but can I get your autograph? I've been following you for a long time. Sign right there. <laughs> Pussy puts laps in the face of death. Bounty hunter. So I've heard. You will find your reward does not come easily. This I tell you. Everyone thinks they'll be the one to defeat me. But no one's escaped me yet. Uh, all right, let's get it over with. Fear me if you dare me. The most satisfying film I saw this summer, and the equal shortest with Megan, was Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, a brilliantly animated mediation on ageing and mortality with a fantastic cast, including Olivia Colman, Ray Winstone, Florence Pugh, uh, as well as the returning Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek Pinot. It has a very different look to the previous film, which somehow made the whole thing feel more thoughtful. It's still very funny, though. Sammy, 
We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train won't ever get broken. One more thing, Dolly. Let's not tell your father. It'll be our secret movie, just yours and mine. Okay? Okay. In The Fablemans, a kid growing up in post-war Arizona discovers a talent for making films with his Eagle Scout chums. His mother, a talented pianist, encourages him. His father, an engineer in the newfangled world of computers, calls it a hobby and would rather he dedicated his life to building real things that people can use. If you have a passing acquaintance with the biography of the iconic film director Steven Spielberg and the two-part documentary about his life that came out in 2017 and which is still available on the Neon streaming service, you'll know that this premise makes The Fablemans the closest thing to pure autobiography that Mr Spielberg has ever come up with. In the past, he has sublimated the psychological and emotional impacts of his parents' relationship difficulties inside his fantastical flights of fancy. Richard Dreyfus losing his mind and his children in close encounters. Indiana Jones' tempestuous relationship with his father in The Last Crusade. Elliot growing up with a single parent in E.T., and Christian Bale being separated from his parents in Empire of the Sun, then forced to fend for himself. On its surface, The Fablemans is Spielberg's attempt to understand and then forgive his parents and their unhappiness, but also to forgive himself for allowing his obsession with movie-making to blind him to how they were feeling. But he has nothing to forgive himself for. He was a kid, and it's your parents' job to shield you from adult dramas and concerns, which, for a lot of his childhood, that's what they did. I want you to make a camping trip movie. You can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that'd be great. Get to it tomorrow, okay? Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. <laughs> Escape to nowhere. We're shooting all weekend. Shooting Dad, it this weekend. We got like forty guys coming to be in the movie. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trip stuff on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Please. Don't be selfish. She just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to just to... died. It's, it's, how is that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. Sammy Fableman, played as a teenager and young adult by Spielberg dead ringer Gabriel LaBelle, loves the magic of the movies and has a gift for understanding how they're put together. With his Eagle Scout colleagues, he wins a photography merit badge by making a Western inspired by the man who shot Liberty Valance, learning along the way that he can produce realistic-looking muzzle flashes just by poking holes in the film. Bert Fableman, Paul Dano, is a technical wizard himself, fixing radios and TVs to top up a meagre General Electric salary. But he can see that there is a future in computing, and he's already uprooted the family once from New Jersey to Arizona in pursuit of that dream. 
Mitzi Fableman, Michelle Williams, is talented enough to be a professional pianist, but her dreams are thwarted by motherhood and the 1950s. Seth Rogen plays Uncle Benny, best pal of both Bert and Mitzi, uh, but he's also not actually an uncle. By the time the family gets to California and Bert's dream job at IBM, Mitzi's depression has begun to spiral out of control, resulting in the surprise addition to the family of a pet monkey that she calls Benny. You see, what she got in her heart is what you got, what I got. Art. Like me, like you, I think. We're junkies. And art is our drug. Family, we love but art, we're my sugar for art. You think I wanted to leave my sisters, my mama, and my papa and go stick my stupid head in the mouth of lions? Putting your head in a lion's mouth is art? <laughs> no, sticking your head in the mouth of lions was balls. Making sure the lion don't eat my head, that is art. That's the voice of the great Judd Hirsch as Mitzi's exotic Uncle Boris, giving young Sam some advice about a career in the arts that Bert would definitely not agree with. No matter how personal the story is for Spielberg, it isn't all that novel for the rest of us. The secret weapon here is the screenwriter Tony Kushner, the writer of Spielberg's better late-period films, including Munich, Lincoln, and the wonderful version of West Side Story from... Christmas 2021. Kushner, better known as a playwright before coming into Mr Spielberg's orbit, he wrote the masterpiece Angels in America, seems to bring out the best in Spielberg and it's notable that this story might have become maudlin if it had been left in Spielberg's hands alone. It might have been too respectful perhaps. In fact, it has more laughs than anything I've seen of his in a while. At our house, we spent a lot of the summer break watching early Spielberg, the Sugarland Express, Duel. We got as far as the Temple of Doom. Take my advice, though. Don't be tempted to watch 1941, even if you do want to complete the set. There's way too much cocaine and confidence that derailed that effort. Some might see the Fablemans as a Spielberg victory lap. If it is, it's a jog, not a sprint. But the love he shows for his parents and his gratitude for their love for him, well, we could all do with a little bit more of that in our lives. And the film finishes with an absolute cracker of a closing shot. A laugh at his own expense, I think, but also a manifesto. Don't be boring. And while it can be a little meandering at times, the film never is. Okay, so then the sergeant, he comes over the hill here, and I'm going to go below him, so we see him in the sky. And so we don't see what he sees, but we do see that he's really... Okay, so he's like almost losing his mind, right? Because what he is seeing is totally terrible. And then I'm going to turn the camera so that we see it. It's just in another notebook. Hang on. That's the movie. Uh, you could show me instead of describing me to death. No, nah, that's just our stupid camping trip, my dad's. He wants me to put this camping film together so it'll cheer up Mom. Because her heart is broken. Because her mama is toyed. But you, Mr. Director, you don't want to do this. But your daddy tells you because you want to make your war picture, huh? Yeah, yeah. Believe me, Sammy boy, I get it. Family, art. It'll tear you in two. The Fablemans is rated M for offensive language and is playing in cinemas across Aotearoa now. What about you? 
Sorry? If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. I love that answer. Something that lasts, that means something. Something yes. more important than life. Yes. It's written in the stars. I am a star. If I had money, I would only spend it on things that were fun, you know? Not boring things like taxes. I'm just one for everyone to party forever. Damien Chazelle's epic Babylon starts extreme and somehow contrives to get even extremia, which is an achievement of some kind, I suppose. But I'm still trying to work out what the point was of it all. I don't mind being bludgeoned with bold imagery and jump cuts, loud noises and explicit content, envelope-pushing offensiveness. That's fine. Normally, I'd say, bring it on. But I have little patience when sound and fury signify nothing. And I'm afraid that Babylon, despite all the fireworks, struggles for coherence. We open on a Californian dirt road in 1926. An elephant is being transported to be a showpiece at a rich man's bacchanal. The party is in what will eventually become the wealthy Los Angeles suburb of Bel Air. And one of the things that Chazelle does get right is the almost complete emptiness of Southern California and Los Angeles County at this time. The mansion is palatial, but there's not another soul around for miles. The movies have only been in the state for a few years and the landscape is mostly arid dust bowl and orange groves. The infrastructure that came to be known as Hollywood hasn't arrived yet. And Babylon is a story of Hollywood. Specifically, how the industry went from silent pictures and a cottage industry that could make superstars overnight to talking pictures. And as all that money started coagulating at the feet of a smaller group of people, the arrival of big business. At the party, we meet all of our recurring characters. Ambitious fixer Manuel Torres, Diego Calva. Ambitious it girl Nelly Leroy, Margot Robbie. Gifted trumpeter Sidney Palmer, Giovanna Depo, and fading matinee idol Jack Conrad, Brad Pitt, among others, in a bravura opening sequence which would surely be a test for even the finest intimacy coordinators, the themes of our picture are unveiled. But not before Nelly and Manuel have a moment. I am a star. I think you want to become a star. Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am. The movie business came to California for the light. It was abundant and cheap, which meant they could shoot longer, make more pictures, and because audiences were basically eating up everything they were given, that meant more money. But Southern California in the teens and 20s was its own version of the Wild West. There was very little in the way of legal oversight of the work or of the play, Imagine if the carnies from last year's Nightmare Alley had gone into the motion picture business and made tens of millions of dollars. That's kind of how Chazelle would like us to picture it. But that's not the only truth about the period. Some of the most extraordinary works of art of the early 20th century were being made at this time by people who actually gave us stuff. Yes, D.W. Griffith disregarded the safety of his Skid Row extras on intolerance, but that was 1916... By 1926, Buster Keaton was making The General and Charlie Chaplin had just made The Gold Rush. Murnau made Sunrise in 1927. And despite 
Pitt's character's constant chirping about how the movies can be high art, nobody in the film is able to acknowledge that it was already happening. There were obviously too many drugs on the kinescope set, no doubt. Tell me, you miss the silence? No. Shouldn't stand in the way of progress. What are your thoughts for the future? We have to redefine the form. We've got to innovate. We've got to inspire. I didn't intend to make direct comparisons between films this week. Spielberg is a master, obviously, but Damien Chazelle also has an Oscar for Best Director, so I think he can take it. All of the characters in Babylon, played to the hilt, I might add, there are no complaints there, have some form of inspiration in Hollywood history. Robbie's Leroy is based very loosely on Clara Bow, for example, but none of them get to be fully realised. Say what you like about the sentimentality of the Fablemans, but at least they're all psychologically complete characters. Apart from Calver's Manny Torres and Adepo's trumpeter Sidney Palmer, there's just nothing to any of them. Robbie is obviously up for anything and brave as a lion, but I really want to see if she has any range, because there's not enough on display here. Still got it. dead. He, he, he did have a drinking problem. That's true. He probably ran into it himself, huh? It's a disease. Damien Chazelle knows that we've already got one perfectly good film about the transition from silent to sound, a little thing called Singing in the Rain. So to be fair, he leans in, doubles down on all the parallels to the extent that it sometimes feels like a remake singing in the rain for the Pornhub generation, and it's often as ugly as that sounds. And by the end, I'm not even sure what his manifesto is. Was the wild and crazy osh nightmare of the early days of Hollywood a source of artistic freedom and creativity that would be stifled by the arrival of the money men and test audiences? Or was it a cruel and ruthless machine that didn't care who got hurt on the way to riches and fame? One more thing. Screenwriters, if you don't know how to end a character's story, please don't just default to suicide. It's cheap and ugly and unnecessary most of the time. That's the jackass they said to screw us. Yeah! That bitch is stealing the scene right from Mummy. She's icing her nipples so they perk up through her dress. I ain't icing my nipples. This is natural. Where do you say we come in for my close-up now? Babylon is rated R18 for sex scenes, violence, drug use, offensive language and suicide. It's playing in cinemas across New Zealand now, but because of the length, sessions will be limited. It was junior year, day one, the classroom door opened, and there he was. There was a guy who looked about 40. Standing in the corner, he had a briefcase... And he was wearing a, a school tie. He definitely wore a blazer. He was in yeah. full regalia. And it was the blazer and the satchel kind of suitcase that stuck out because we were all rucksacks and 
it's just ordinary jackets, parker jackets, whatever, and that kind of, it made you double take. Back in 1993, the Wellington filmmaker Rachel Davies presented a short film at the Wellington Fringe Film Festival. Yes, we used to have one of those, which provided one answer to the question, in a documentary, how do you present the testimony of someone who is content to be interviewed on tape but doesn't want to be filmed? You might have a compelling first-person account of a great story, but no visuals. Where's your film? In Rachel's film Sweetness, she solved it artistically by filming herself lip-syncing to the existing audio, sitting at a school desk in front of a map of the world, recreating one of those classic Kiwi school photos. I was instantly reminded of that powerful presentation by the new Scottish documentary My Old School, which also might have suffered from the fact that their key witness didn't wish to have their face on camera. Brian McKinnon achieved considerable notoriety back in 1995 when it was revealed that he had enrolled in what we would call Year 12 at his local high school, despite actually being 30 years of age. In the case of my old school, they chose the actor Alan Cumming to do the lip-syncing, chosen because 25 years ago he was down to play the character when another producer was trying to make a film of this story. So he's been a part of it for a long time already. He used to help me with my homework and help me in my exam studies. The square on the hypotenuse is equal to the... I don't know who else he helped, but... It certainly benefited me, not just from a friendship point of view, but academically as well. I have a genius-level IQ. My IQ was recorded at 158 when I was 8 and 162 at 9, and that's as high as it goes. It's a fantastic story, beautifully told by director John O. MacLeod, who was a peer of McKinnon's, known implausibly as Brandon Lee at the time, at the middle-class Bearsden Academy in Glasgow. McLeod drafts in plenty of others who are in Brandon Lee's class, as well as a few of the teachers from the period. It's striking how, despite the fact that they all thought Lee looked a lot older than he professed to be, everyone gave him the benefit of what little doubt they had. It's remarkable how effective I've been living in Canada can be in answering all sorts of mysteries. His classmates liked him, and his teachers were understandably impressed. Unlike many fabulists, he was never prosecuted, even though the whole business was odd and creepy in equal measure. I don't want to give too much more away, as these sorts of films are often judged by how many jaw-dropping moments they have, and believe me, this one has plenty. One day my mother said to me, your dreams are separate from your waking life. But for some people you can go further than that. You can be aware of the fact that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. When you're inside a lucid dream, you can begin to uh, use that to get what you want. When you have so little original material to go on, you need to use it sparingly. MacLeod certainly does that. But you also have to keep the story going somehow, and he should be very grateful to his former classmates who, usually sitting in pairs in a reconstructed Bearsden classroom, are all winning personalities with excellent and entertaining recall. They're neat. 
And also, even though I'm not normally a fan of reconstructions, the animated presentation of the story is often very funny, with actors including the great Claire Grogan from the film Gregory's Girl and the iconic Scottish pop star Lulu. Impossible and schmossable, you can get round impossible. I watched Mission Impossible when I was little, and that was very influential for me, especially the first season. My Old School is exempt from classification and it is playing in select cinemas around the Motu now. This is the end Amigos And that's our programme for this week. I'm going to leave you with a sample from the soundtrack of the film Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This is Dan Navarro covering The Doors, The End. This week's edition of At The Movies was written and produced by me, Dan Slevin, and mixed and edited by Phil Benj. Simon Morris is back in the hot seat next week, so I hope you'll join him here at the same time and the same place. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.